Good morning, everybody. Great to see you again. Uh, this week we're going to continue in the book of Daniel. Last week we finished going through chapter 1, where Daniel and his three friends showed courage, great courage, when they purposed in their hearts not to compromise. They stepped out in faith and were kind, and they considered other people's situations and feelings, especially that of the eunuch in charge. They were willing to negotiate and compromise in a godly way and not just demand their own way, even if it was the right thing. And I'm just spending a bit of time on this because this is a great model for us to follow, especially in our families. We seek God to know His will, but then we seek to achieve what we know that God wants us to do in a way that brings glory to God. This would minimize, I believe, much marital conflict, conflict between parents and children, and also problems between people in the church, and of course, outside the church. It's so easy to be obnoxious and dogmatic and unsympathetic and even rude when we have strong convictions about something. So, you know, just imagine Daniel talking down to the chief of the eunuchs saying something like, You pagans, you don't know anything about following God. Don't you know that idols are stupid and dumb, and that those who worship them become like them? Why do you bother sacrificing animals and wine to them? I know the truth and you don't, so do what I say. Take away that disgusting and defiled food, and just give me water and a vegetarian diet so I can avoid food sacrificed to idols. Now, Daniel may have been right, but his actions would lead to death. Now what do I mean by that? Well, firstly, death to the relationship with the chief of the eunuchs, and then to himself, because he would have been seen to be deliberately refusing the king's command. Often the issue starts off as being wrong or right, but it soon changes to a different issue, a bigger issue, which is how we treat the other person. So as we consider this, just remember that Daniel is not compromising. If the chief of the eunuchs refused, then Daniel was prepared to die for his faith. Absolutely. There was no compromise in his heart. He is purposed in his heart not to defile himself. But what we do see in his life, in addition to his purity and devotion to truth, is a gentleness and empathy which is very much Christ-like. And we find this in Philippians chapter 1, verses 3-5, to where it says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. The passage goes on to describe how Jesus modeled the above verses putting other people's interests, ours, ahead of his own in a huge way when he died for us on the cross. And another thing to consider about being wise is it's not just about knowing what is right and what is wrong, but it's also about how we treat people. So James chapter 3 verse 17 says, But the wisdom from above is first of all pure, so it's got to be true. But then it goes on to say, it is also peace-loving, 
gentle at all times and willing to yield to others. It is full of mercy and the fruit of good deeds. It shows no favoritism and is always sincere. Being demanding only turns people away from God. It means I am seeking my will at the expense of others because my priority, my first priority, is getting my own way. So being willing to yield is a fruit of the Spirit. It means I have the same attitude which Jesus had of esteeming others as better than myself and putting myself in their shoes and seeking to do what is best for the other person and all the while not compromising on what I know to be right. So remember the fruit of the Spirit? Some of them are kindness, patience, gentleness. And I just want to show you an example from the Gospels. Jesus. It's found in Matthew chapter 17, verses 24 to 27. And it says, When they had come to Capernaum, those who received the temple tax came to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the temple tax? He said, Yes. And when he had come into the house, Jesus anticipated him, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take customs or taxes? From their sons or from strangers? Peter said to him, From strangers. Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. In other words, I don't have to pay it. I'm the son of the father. The money is being paid to my family, to me. Why should I have to pay the tax? Nevertheless, though, Jesus continues, lest we offend them, go to the sea, cast in a hook, and take the fish that comes up first. And when you have opened its mouth, you will find a piece of money. Take that and give it to them for me and you. And I just want to want you to realize or notice just how far Jesus went to not cause problems. He didn't want to offend them unnecessarily. Now we know that he didn't compromise on truth and he did offend them big time when he needed to. But when he didn't need to, when he was looking to try to get along with people, he put up with a lot. It was his right not to pay the temple tax, but he gave up his rights once again and pay the temple tax, so as not to cause an argument. So, didn't break any laws. All he did was demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit. So Jesus demonstrated humility, gentleness, and he was willing to yield. So Jesus had the upper hand, but he chose not to use it. So remember that love bears all things, even if they are annoying or unnecessary. Ask God to help you to examine your own relationships and see if there are any problem areas that could be due to being unwilling to yield. Now, before we get into chapter 2, I just want to go through the main emphases or the big picture in the book of Daniel. And I think there's four of them. Well, I'm going to go through four of them. The first one is the absolute sovereignty of God, which we went through a bit last week in more detail, so I'm just going to mention it. And the second one is the power of persistent prayer. We see example after examples of persistent prayer. 
The third one is the long-range view that God has. God's plan for the nations, for the ages. Right up until Jesus comes back. So basically, God is showing us here that he knows everything and that he's demonstrating to Daniel and to Nebuchadnezzar and to all those who are in Babylon at this time that he is the king of kings and that he has everything planned out according to his plan and his purposes. And the final one is probably the most beautiful one. It's the inexhaustible, the immeasurable, the unending grace of God. Even after all the stern warnings the prophets had given the people of Israel and the people of Judah and the severe judgment of near total destruction that they faced when the Babylonians came and destroyed Jerusalem and took them captive, the Lord never abandoned his people to the full consequences of their sin, but in loving kindness subjected them to an ordeal that purged them of idolatry. So in their being punished for their sin, they were also being purged. So God was, in his mercy, getting them ready to go back into the land, to return to their homeland and setting the stage for the coming of the Messiah. So, God's persevering grace. God didn't give up on Israel and he will not give up on you or me either. This week, we're going to get into chapter 2 where Daniel both reveals and interprets Nebuchadnezzar's dream. This is focusing on God's sovereignty and God's foreknowledge. He knows everything and he's revealing it to men. It's amazing. Now, by this time, Daniel has been in Babylon for three years, having just finished his three years of training. So what I'm going to do is pray and then we'll um, read the chapters together. Dear Lord, I thank you for this beautiful day you've given us, the rain. I just pray that you help us to understand your word as we go through Nebuchadnezzar's dream, but also as we were just talking about, Lord, help us to examine ourselves and see if there's anything in us where we are being unreasonable or dogmatic, too dogmatic, or seeking to just do what we want to do. And I just pray that we'll be willing to yield and gentle and kind and bearing with each other, tolerating each other's weaknesses and idiosyncrasies and not demanding our own way. So help us to be patient with each other, I pray, especially in our marriages and with our kids and with our relationships in the church too, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Daniel chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Now in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. And his spirit was so troubled that his sleep left him. Then the king gave the command to call the magicians, the astrologers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. So they came and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I have had a dream, and my spirit is anxious to know the dream. And the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants a dream, and we will give the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, My decision is firm. If you do not make 
known the dream to me and its interpretation, you shall be cut in pieces, and your houses shall be made an ash heap. However, if you tell the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts, rewards, and great honor. Therefore, tell me the dream and its interpretation. They answered again and said, Let the king tell his servants a dream, and we will give its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know for certain that you would gain time, because you see that my decision is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me, there is only one decree for you, for you have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the time has changed. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can give me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can tell the king's matter. Therefore, no king, lord, or ruler has ever asked such things of any magician, astrologer, or Chaldean. It is a difficult thing that the king requests, and there is no other who can tell it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. For this reason the king was angry and very furious, and gave the command to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree went out, and they began killing the wise men, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Verse 14 Then with counsel and wisdom Daniel answered Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He answered and said to Arioch, the king's captain, Why is the decree from the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the decision known to Daniel. So Daniel went in and asked the king to give him time, that he might tell the king the interpretation. Then Daniel went to his house and made the decision known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, that they might seek mercies from the God of heaven concerning this secret, so that Daniel and his companions might not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the secret was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. So Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God for ever and ever. For wisdom and might are his. And he changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and secret things. He knows what is in the darkness, and light dwells with him. I thank you and praise you, O God of my fathers. You have given me wisdom and might, and have now made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's demand. Verse 24 Then Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me before the king, and I will tell the king the interpretation. Then Arioch quickly brought Daniel before the king and said thus to him, I have found a man of the captives of Judah who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, The secret 
which the king has demanded, the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, and the soothsayers cannot declare to the king. But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head upon your bed were these. As for you, O king, thoughts came to your mind while on your bed about what would come to pass after this. And he who reveals secrets has made known to you what will be. But as for me, this secret has not been revealed to me because I have more wisdom than anyone living, but for our sakes who make known the interpretation to the king, and that you may know the thoughts of your heart. You, O king, were watching, and behold, a great image. This great image, whose splendor was excellent, stood before you, and its form was awesome. This image's head was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You watched while a stone was cut without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay, and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This is the dream. Now we will tell the interpretation of it before the king. You, O king, are a king of kings, for the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power and strength and glory, and wherever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the field and the birds of the heaven, he has given them into your hand and made you ruler over them, and you are this head of gold. But after you shall arise another kingdom inferior to yours, then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything. And like iron that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all the others. Whereas you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be divided. Yet the strength of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile. As you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men, but they would not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made it known to the king what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain, 
and its interpretation is sure. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face, prostrate before Daniel, and commanded that they should present an offering and incense to him. The king answered Daniel and said, Truly, your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings, and a revealer of secrets, since you could reveal this secret. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts, and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon, and chief administrator over all the wise men of Babylon. Also Daniel petitioned the king, and he set Shadrach, Meshach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel sat in the gate of the king. So, an amazing chapter, amazing revelation from God over, basically, from that point on, the history or the future of the entire world up until Jesus comes back. And as we get more into the book of Daniel, we get more and more details and God gives us more details about the timeline. The second chapter of Daniel has been called the backbone of Bible prophecy because if you don't understand chapter 2, then you can't unlock the rest of the prophecies in the book of Daniel, which in turn unlock the prophecies of the book of Revelation. So for a good handle or a good understanding of eschatology, the study of end times, you need to be thoroughly familiar with the book of Daniel and of chapter 2 specifically. Now it's not that hard to understand, but it's good to take the time to make sure we do understand this so we can understand the rest of the Bible prophecy specifically about Israel and the end times accurately. So let's start at verse 1. Now in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams and his spirit was so troubled that his sleep left him. So I've got a useless fact here. But it's interesting. Psychologists tell us that 90% of a person's free mental time the time not devoted to a specific activity is spent wondering about the past or worrying about the future. And Nebuchadnezzar was no exception. What about you? <laughs> How much time do you spend wondering about the past or worrying about the future? And I think most people would spend probably about 90%. So Nebuchadnezzar is lying on his bed worrying about the future. So in the second year, well, in other places it says the third year of the exile. So it's just a, a different way that the Babylonians record the years. The moment Nebuchadnezzar started to reign, it would have been his zero year. And he had to reign for a full year or up to a certain date before he would be starting his first year. In Israel, the Israeli kings, well, as soon as they started reigning, that was year one. And so if you use the way the Israel kings were measured, this would be his third. And therefore, there's enough time gone by for the four Hebrew youths, um, Daniel and his friends, to complete their three years of training. So this dream really troubled him to the point that his sleep left him. He woke up and he was really anxious. He was disturbed. And he wanted to know what it meant. This was a scary dream. Can you imagine having this dream and not knowing what it meant with this rock smashing this statue and covering the whole earth? Now, here's a question for us. 
does God still use dreams to communicate his will? Well, certainly he can do so if he pleases, but this isn't his usual approach. God guides his children today by his Holy Spirit as they pray, seek his face, meditate on his word, and consult with their spiritual leaders. The danger is that our dreams may not come from the Lord. The human subconscious is capable of producing dreams, and Jeremiah 23, 25-32 indicates that demonic forces can cause dreams that are Satan's lies and not God's truth. It's dangerous to accept dreams as messages from the Lord. And I know that I've talked to some people who think they have to interpret every dream they have, but I don't believe that's safe or right. If you do have a dream, it needs to line up with Scripture if you think it comes from God. And in Jeremiah, it talks about the wheat and the chaff and all these false prophets. Yes, they were actually called false prophets and they were having lots of dreams, but God says they're rubbish. They're like chaff. If you want to get to the real meat, you need to get into the Word. Get rid of the dreams, get into the Word. And that's what was happening in Jeremiah's time. So be careful with the dreams. Everything must line up with the Word of God. Okay, verse 2. Then the king gave the command to call the magicians, the astrologers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. So they came and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I have had a dream, and my spirit is anxious to know the dream. So the Chaldeans were the most educated men in the empire. That's basically why they're different to the other people there. They're the elite in the empire. They're considered the wisest of all the wise men. Uh, just a little side note here. Uh, from Daniel chapter 2, verse 4 to chapter 7, 28, the biblical text is in Aramaic, not Hebrew. So this is the only section of the Bible written in Aramaic. So if in case you didn't know, the Old Testament, the rest of it is written in Hebrew, and the New Testament written in Greek. So this section here is written in Aramaic. Why? Aramaic is the language of the Babylonian Empire, and so this was written in the language of the people, so the people could read it. The people in Babylon could read it. And it would have been common knowledge or readily available for people in those days at that time. God was using this to bring glory to himself, to show that he was greater than all the gods in Babylon, just as he showed that he was greater than all the gods in Egypt, etc. Uh, verse 4, Then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants a dream, and we will give the interpretation. The king answered and said, No. <laughs> you need to tell me what the dream is and then give the interpretation. He's basically saying, If you're as wise as you say you are, you should be able to tell me not only the interpretation, but the dream as well. Why is he being so dogmatic about this, Nebuchadnezzar? Well, if you get a dream and you get 10 people and each of those people gives an interpretation of that dream they'll all be different most likely 
So how do you know which is the right interpretation? How do you know what is the right interpretation? If there is a right interpretation. So Nebuchadnezzar is asking them, he wants to know that they are the real deal. They're not just making it up. And these guys claimed to have supernatural help in getting special knowledge. Because remember, they're into the occult for the tarot cards and astrology and all that kind of stuff. Uh, Verse 7, they answered again and said, let the king tell our servants a dream and we will give its interpretation. And they go through this thing and they're saying it can't be done. And the only one who can do it, or the only way it can be told is from the gods. Only the gods can tell you what was in your head, what you dreamt. And they don't dwell in flesh. They don't dwell with people. So basically they're saying there's not a man on earth that can do what you ask. And just think about this. Despite all the wisdom, real and imagined, and all their access to demonic activity, all their tarot cards and their their astrology and, and all their things that they used to do, these wise men had no answer for Nebuchadnezzar. Because only God could bring an answer to the king. Only God knows the future. The devil does not know the future. And the devil does not know what's in your head. I believe, and we get that from here, the devil does not know. Only God knows what we think. The devil knows what we say because he's listening. But he doesn't know what we think. Now, here's a uh, quote which compares these wise men in Babylon to some modern-day ministers of our own day. It says, They were like some modern ministers of our own day who spend their time studying philosophy, psychiatry, psychology, social science, political science, and then continue under the pretense of being God's messengers to men. So, modern ministers, pastors... And instead of teaching the word of God, they teach the wisdom of man, which is foolishness. It's not from God. It's useless. Now, it says there, except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh, in verse 11. Now, as far as these pagan magicians knew, these astrologers and these so-called wise men, this was true. But today, we have greater revelation. We have the knowledge that Jesus is God. What was he called in Matthew chapter 1 verse 23? He was called Emmanuel, which means God with us. It's God dwelling with men, with people. Now, I mentioned this a little bit before, but I just want to mention a few more examples. Throughout the Bible history, you will find occasions when God exposed the foolishness of the world and the deceptiveness and the weakness and the limitations of Satan. For example, Moses and Aaron defeated the magicians of Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt. The gods of Egypt were shamed. Elijah on Mount Carmel exposed the deception of Baal worship in 1 Kings 18. Jeremiah confronted the false prophet Hananiah and revealed his wickedness, Jeremiah 28. And Paul exposed the deception of Bar-Jesus, a sorcerer, in Acts chapter 13, 1 to 12. 
So this statement here in Daniel chapter 2 verse 10 shows us that astrology, you know, tarot cards and all these other forms of demonic or human prophecy are useless. They're deceptive. They do not know the true future. Only God knows the future. And out of their own mouths, they have condemned their own practices. They're saying, we're actually quite useless. We don't have knowledge of the future. We just have to make things up. And we're not willing to make things up because we don't know the dream. So, verse 12. For this reason, the king was very angry and furious and gave the command to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree went out and they began killing the wise men and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Now, what does Daniel do? Does he panic? The guard has come out looking for them. For what purpose? To kill them. Now, with counsel and wisdom, Daniel answered Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. That's verse 14. And he answered and said to Arioch, the king's captain, Why is the decree from the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the decision known to Daniel, what Nebuchadnezzar had said. So Daniel went in and asked the king to give him time, that he might tell the king the interpretation. So, two things here. With counsel and wisdom, Daniel answered Arioch. Daniel's calmness in this crisis showed what kind of man he really was. It's really true, I believe, that a crisis does not make the man. Rather, a crisis reveals the man. It reveals who the man really is. Now, why did Daniel ask the king to give him time? Well, there's a principle here. Daniel knew that it takes time to listen to the Lord and to wait upon him. And there's many examples in scripture, including Jesus himself when he was up in the mountain all night praying for who the disciples would be, who the twelve that he would choose. He was praying all night before that big decision. And he knows that he's going to have to take time. Prayer is not an instant thing. Prayer takes time. Now, there's a bit of a miracle here too. The fact that King Nebuchadnezzar would actually give them a day. And the fact that Arioch was willing to risk his own life in going to the king. And in one sense, defy the king's command. The king had already told him to go and kill all the wise men, and he was really angry. So Arioch was risking his life to go back in and say, hang on a second, I think there's someone, but they need more time. The other people had asked for more time, and they got, you know, basically the death sentence. So Arioch is putting his trust in these four Jewish men. Their gracious actions and words during their three years of training We're now hoping to save their lives. Their willingness to yield previously is now bearing fruit. They have developed and cultivated relationships with these pagan guards. They have a good reputation. So what does Daniel do? In verse 17, Then Daniel went to his house and made the decision known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, that they might seek mercies 
from the God of heaven concerning the secret, so that Daniel and his companions might not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. So, I would have loved to have been there in that prayer meeting. This is one of the things that I think is a secret to prayer. And that's a bit of desperation. It's a bit of concern. It's a bit of understanding their need. Understanding how important prayer is, both for him and his companions. If we had this urgency in our prayers, because the Bible says the effective, earnest prayer of the righteous man availeth much. If we had this urgency in our prayers, if we were more aware of the danger that we are in, the needs that we have, then our prayers would have more urgency and they would therefore be more effective. We wouldn't just be praying, oh, I kind of think that God might, should do this for me, you know, and I might need God's help here. No, 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 no. We don't know what the future holds. We need to be praying for our kids. We need to be praying for our friends. We need to be praying for our marriages. Because we need God to be working on our behalf through our prayers. We need to have this sense of urgency and this sense of expectation that God will answer our prayers. Now, Daniel praying with his friends, God wants us to be in fellowship with other believers. All through history, it's people praying together, agreeing with each other, and that leads to answers to prayer. Not saying you can't pray by yourself, and there are examples of individual prayer. Most of the time, it's people praying together. God says, where two or more are gathered, I will be there. It's the agreement that can bring power in prayer. Nebuchadnezzar took his problems to bed. (laughs) Daniel took his to God. And what a difference that makes. Daniel got a good night's sleep. And Nebuchadnezzar was anxious. So, when you're anxious, pray. Daniel 2.19 Then the secret was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. So Daniel prayed. God still hadn't answered, but Daniel went to bed and he slept. He had peace. As soon as Daniel got the vision, he ran out the door and said, quick, quick, quick. No, that's not what he did. He blessed the God of heaven. So chapter 2, verse 19. Then the secret was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. So Daniel blessed the God of heaven. The first thing he does is not boast about, I've got the answer. No, he says, he stops and he blesses the God of heaven. He praises God. He worships God. And I'll read those verses to you now. It's verses 20 to 23. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. And he changes the times and seasons. He removes kings and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and secret things and knows what is in the darkness, and light dwells with him. I thank you and praise you, O God of my fathers. You have given me wisdom and might, and have now made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's demand. So Daniel stopped and took the time to offer praise before he went out to save the lives of the people. So 
sometimes when God shows us things, maybe a lot of the time, we just want to get up and go. But really, we should slow down and look up. We should worship and give thanks. And remember that Daniel is giving thanks before he has gone in to the king. So he's praising God before he has received this pardon from death. Now, just going through the blessings that Daniel is praising God for and how and why he's worshipping God. In verse 21, he changes times and seasons. He removes and raises up kings. He knows all things. So Daniel is praising God for his power and might. He's reminding God, praising God, because God is in command of all things and God is mightier than even the most mighty king like Nebuchadnezzar at the time. In the second part there, he gives wisdom, he reveals deep and secret things. So now Daniel is praising God for his communication to man. So, yeah, God might be all-powerful and might know everything, but it's not going to help Daniel if God stayed silent. And through the scriptures, God promises to reveal things to us. He wants to reveal things to us. We need persistent and urgent prayer. And the last one, or the last concept in this worship from Daniel is, You have given me wisdom and might. You have made known to me what we asked of you. So Daniel had the certainty of faith to believe that God gave him the answer, even before confirming it before Nebuchadnezzar. He didn't actually know if this was a dream. He just trusting that this dream was accurate, that this was the same one that Nebuchadnezzar had. So our level of faith, this is a quote, our level of faith is often indicated by how long it takes us to start praising God. If we won't praise him until the answer is in hand, then we don't have much faith. Greater faith is able to praise God when the promise is given and received, but before it's been given to us. Think of the ten lepers in Luke chapter 12. Jesus told them to go their way and show themselves to the priest. And as they went, they were healed. All ten rejoiced, but only one came back and thanked the Lord. You are made whole, Jesus said to him. All ten were healed, but only the one who came back and worshipped was made whole which speaks of not only his body, but also his soul and spirit as well. Are we like the nine, or are we like the one? So, we want to be like Daniel. He was a prayer warrior, and a praiser, and a worshipper. Verse 24, Therefore Daniel went to Arioch, and asked him to take him to the king, to give the interpretation. And the king says to Daniel in verse 26, Are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, The secret which the king has demanded, the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, and the soothsayers cannot declare to the king. So there we go again. God is shaming the pagan gods, demonstrating that the demonic forces are no match to God. They do not know the future. So, if you are going to try and find out the future by going to an astrologer or a tarot card reader or something like that, you're wasting your time. You're going to be deceived. Verse 28, But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets. God alone knows the future, and he communicates these things to men. 
And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head upon your bed were these. So notice that Daniel didn't say, I can tell you your dream. He said, only the Lord can give you the information and understanding you seek. And I believe this was why Daniel was used from the time he was a young man all the way until he was 85 or older. He didn't take the credit for himself. And I think the fastest way to see the work of God through your life stopped or lessened is to begin to think it's because you're special. If we start thinking it's because of us, then God will stop using us because he's not getting the glory. And one of the important phrases here is what will be in the latter days. So Nebuchadnezzar's dream didn't just concern himself for his kingdom, but the whole span of the future, right up to the latter days. So what is the latter days in the scripture? Well, the phrase latter days, last days or last times, is found frequently in the scripture, beginning with Genesis chapter 49 verse 1 and ending with Second Peter chapter 3 verse 3. Now when did the last days start? Well, with the death of our Lord Jesus Christ, with his death, resurrection and ascension into heaven. And you can look up Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2 and First Peter 1.20. So we are now living in that period of time when God is, in effect, wrapping things up. God has plans for the latter days of Israel. And you can see Genesis chapter 49 verse 1, Deuteronomy 31.29 and Daniel 2.28. And for them... The latter days will climax with the Messiah returning to earth after the seven years of tribulation and being received by his people. And you can see that in Hosea 3.5, Micah 4.1 and Joel chapter 2 verses 28-29. Now the last days for the church includes perilous times. 2 Timothy chapter 1 The apostasy of many and the rise of scoffers and deniers of the truth. 2 Peter 3.1, and we see that happening today. Lovers of men, lovers of self, disobedient to parents, etc. And this period will end when Christ takes his church to heaven. And we read that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13-18. to 18. We call that the rapture. So, the church will be taken up, then the tribulation will happen, Israel will be used by God to share the gospel, and then Jesus will return. That's the plan for the last days. An important part of that is Israel becoming a nation again. Uh, Verse 29. As for you, O king, thoughts came to your mind while on your bed about what would come to pass after this. So the king was thinking about this. And Daniel even knew that the king was thinking about the future while he was lying on his bed. So this is something else that God had revealed to Daniel. Verse 30, but as for me, this secret has not been revealed to me because I have more wisdom than anyone living, but for our sakes who make known the interpretation to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your heart. So basically, Daniel is saying, I'm just an errand boy in order that you might have answers to those things about which you're concerned, Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar. And now he starts giving the interpretation. There's this huge image, this statue whose splendor was excellent, stood before you, and its form was awesome. Now, the head was of gold, 
its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. So this massive statue. You watched while a stone was cut without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. And the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So, looking at this huge statue, Nebuchadnezzar saw a stone, not cut with hands, come rolling down. He hit the statue in the feet and pulverized it entirely. Suddenly the stone became a great mountain and it filled the entire earth. No wonder Nebuchadnezzar was troubled. Now, something about these metals. As you start from the top and go down, the metals get lower or lesser in value. Gold is the most valuable, iron is the least. And these four metals, these four parts of the statue, speak of world history in its entirety as it relates to Israel from the time of Nebuchadnezzar until the coming of Christ. Verse 36, this is the dream. Now we will tell the interpretation of it before the king. You, O king, are a king of kings, for the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. And wherever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the field and the birds of the heaven, he has given them into your hand and has made you ruler over them all. You are this head of gold. But after you shall arise another kingdom inferior to yours, and this is the Medes and Persians, and they overthrew the Babylonians in 530 BC. They defeated them then. So the Babylonian Empire lasted 66 years. The Medo-Persian Empire lasted for 208 years. The Grecian Empire lasted for 185 years. And the Roman Empire lasted for more than 500 years. Now, in verse 39, it says, Then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. Now, there's nothing written in the Bible which is not important. Alexander had conquered the known world, heartbroken and depressed, that there were no more worlds to conquer, no more places or armies to defeat. He died at the age of 33 in a drunken stupor. So, he had basically conquered anyone who could be conquered. We can compare him with Jesus, who also died at 33 years of age. Jesus conquered all of sin and death. There was nothing more for him to conquer either. Jesus did it all. He paid for it it all. Verse 40. And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything. And like iron that crushes it, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all the others. So the Greeks will be defeated by the Roman Empire. Now, basically, the Roman Empire kind of faded out after AD 70. You know, it lasted a few hundred years more, but it just kind of got weaker and weaker and self-destructed. And the feet and the toes are speaking of something that hasn't happened yet. We haven't had this Roman Empire with a federation of kings. What happened in 1948 was the nation of Israel became a nation again. 
and now the nation of Israel is back. And the prophetic clock has started ticking again. And now we get onto these um the toes, the feet with the iron and the clay. And it talks about these toes in verses 41 to 43 as being partly strong, partly fragile. And verse 43 says, As you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. So, basically, they'll be strong, but they will be weak. Now, has this happened, or is this happening? Guess what? In May 1948, Israel became a nation once again, as I just said. And in May... 1950, two years later, six nations came together, formed the Treaty of Rome, and instituted a new resurrected Roman Empire. They called it the European Common Market. So there you go. We have the beginnings of this mixture, these feet with the iron and the clay. And we see in the European Union today this strength, but also weakness, because they can't get along. Verse 44, And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this, the dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. So, in the time of the ten nations, which is future, hasn't happened yet, a stone not cut with hands comes down and strikes the feet. The entire image is pulverized. Now, what is this stone? What is this rock? Well, I believe, and it's pretty obvious, I think, that the stone is the rock of our salvation, Jesus Christ. Peter says that to the Jews he is a stone of stumbling, First Peter two eight. First Corinthians chapter one verse twenty three, Paul says that to the Jews he is a stone of stumbling, and to the Gentiles foolishness. Jesus speaks about himself in Matthew twenty one verses forty two to forty four. He says, "Then Jesus asked him, Didn't you ever read this in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has now become." cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing and it, it is wonderful to see. I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation that will bear the proper fruit. Anyone who stumbles over that stone, what stone? It's Jesus talking about himself, will be broken to pieces and it will crush anyone it falls on. So concerning Jesus, the rock of our salvation, we are either broken before him or we broken by him. The choice is ours. Now, there's a doctrine going around which is quite popular, I suppose, and it's those who say that the kingdom of God will be ushered in as Christians change the economic, political, and educational systems. That is, we'll bring the king back, we'll bring Jesus back by changing the world. But I believe this is heresy. As seen in Daniel, the stone doesn't come to convert the kingdoms of the world, it comes to crush them. It comes instantaneously, explosively, cataclysmically. And all of the empires, the great image of gold, silver, brass and iron, are wiped out 
in a moment. So we are not going to change things to become some kind of utopia. Things are going to get worse, like the scriptures say, like in First Timothy 3, 1 and that. Doesn't mean we don't pray for our nation. We should. We're commanded to. But don't expect the world to suddenly turn to Jesus. It's only going to get worse. Now, there are some people who say that Revelation and Daniel's prophecies are already fulfilled. Well, let's think about that. Obviously, the first three kingdoms have come and gone. That is the Babylonian Empire, the Median Persian Empire, and the Grecian Empire. We all know that that's past. It's history now. It happened in the time between when Daniel said it and today. But what about, and also the Roman Empire with the two legs of iron. But what about the last one with the feet with the ten toes of iron mixed with clay? Now if you look in history, Roman history provides no fulfillment of this federation of kings. This Ten Kings. And you got Daniel seven twenty four and Revelation seventeen twelve indicating that this will happen, but it's not yet happened. And since the fall of the Roman Empire, there's never been a world dominating empire equal to Rome. So we're looking for a renewed, revived Roman Empire to come, and that will be revived under the leadership of the final dictator the antichrist and it says it broke into pieces the iron the bronze the clay the silver and the gold this described a single decisive event that shattered the image representing the glory of man's rule on earth and the church or the gospel have not in a single decisive event shattered the reign of human kingdoms therefore this event is still in the future another observation is that this isn't the gradual salvation of the world by the church. Smashing is not salvation. Crushing is not conversion. Destroying is not delivering. Nor is pulverizing the same as purification. And the stone cut without hands is the Messiah, not the church. Psalm 118 verse 22, Isaiah eight fourteen, Isaiah twenty eight sixteen, and Zechariah 3, 9 also refer to Jesus as a stone, in addition to what I've just read before. Therefore, the final superpower of the world is thought to be a revival of the Roman Empire, a continuation of this image. This will be the final world empire that the returning Jesus will conquer. Remember, when Israel became a nation two years later, guess what happened? You had the Treaty of Rome, six nations getting together, and it's grown since then, obviously. It's also significant to see that the image described devolution, not evolution starts with gold and devalues into clay and iron. Another thing as we look forward to the coming chapters is that Daniel sees it from God's perspective later. Because what we're seeing now is from man's perspective. Oh, these kingdoms are fantastic. But from God's perspective, they're just brutal animals. They're just disgusting and violent. Fierce beasts. Now, Daniel says the dream is certain and its interpretation is sure. So Daniel isn't guessing or analyzing. Through Daniel, God announced the future. Now, the only reason God can predict history is because he can control it. He controls it, he knows it, therefore he tells us what's going to happen. 
Now verse 46, Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face, prostrate before Daniel, and commanded that they should present an offering and incense to him. The king answered Daniel and said, Truly your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings, and a revealer of secrets, since you could reveal the secret. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts, and he made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon, and chief administrator over all the wise men of Babylon. So basically he's like second in charge of the kingdom. Also Daniel petitioned the king, and he set Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon, but Daniel sat in the gate of the king. Now this is where decisions were made, in the gate. This is a place of very high authority. So Nebuchadnezzar is not yet saying, your God is my God. He's just basically saying, your God is pretty impressive. Nevertheless, Nebuchadnezzar is making the first of a series of steps that I believe will eventually lead him into the kingdom of God. And notice that Nebuchadnezzar says, your God is the God of gods. So Daniel, through what he said, has caused Nebuchadnezzar to understand that it's not all about Daniel, but it's all about God. God gets the glory. Now, the king promoted Daniel. Daniel not only had his life spared, that's the mercy of God, but he was promoted to high office. That's the grace of God. And he shared that promotion, he shared that glory with his friends. And it's fitting, and it's, I think it's right that Daniel did that, because it's, they shared in the prayer. So, what have we learned today as we've gone through Daniel chapter 2? Well, God can predict history. God can tell us what's going to happen in advance because he controls it, because he already knows it, he already sees it. God is outside of time. And the way he's showing us this series of kingdoms, and we'll get more detail on these as we go through, is just amazing how God is revealing before the end of the world, there's going to be four kingdoms. The Babylonian kingdom, the Medo-Persian, the Greeks, and then the Roman Empire, followed by the revived Roman Empire, which is the feet with the ten toes, with iron mixed with clay. So, rest assured, God is in control. Jesus is going to come back. The nations which are vying for power trying to get their own way, they're all going to be smashed. They're all going to be destroyed. There's going to be one ruler. There's going to be one kingdom when Jesus comes back, and that's going to be his kingdom. He will not share his glory or his authority. It will just be his kingdom. Everything we know now will change. And that's what we call the millennial reign, the thousand-year ruler reign of Jesus Christ, when he reigns for a thousand years. The rule of man will end. The rule of Jesus will start. And it is for eternity. It will never end. So, take heart. Again, that verse, the stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is wonderful to see. What people, the nations have rejected, is going to destroy them. But what we have accepted is going to save us. So, Father, I just pray we can just rest assured in your grace, in your mercy, as you have demonstrated in this chapter by 
showing that you are in control of not just the nations, but also of individual lives. You put people in these tough situations. Why? So you can get the glory. So you can work through them. So you can help them, help us to increase our faith, to exercise our faith, so we can be a part of your plan. We can be the people who share the gospel, who share the good news, and tell people about you, and reveal who you are to those around us, just like Daniel did in this pagan palace with Nebuchadnezzar. The king of the earth, the great king, King Nebuchadnezzar, bows before Daniel, telling Daniel, your God is an awesome God. Lord, our God, you are an awesome God. We just praise you for being an awesome God. And we just submit to you and we bow to you as well. And we just humble ourselves before you and submit to you. And we love you. And we just pray that you will help us to have the faith like Daniel had and to serve you and to trust you in any situation that comes our way, knowing that you will deliver us because you are in control. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.